Well, welcome to this session with Grace Point Church. I am glad that you are viewing this uh, as we proceed here through the book of Philippians. Also, welcome to our church family and to any guests who have found us here online. And uh, we are thankful that uh, we have this opportunity and the technology to continue on. Uh, interestingly, this is, this is free here, but uh, just a side note here. In Psalm 68, uh, David writes that, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. And uh, he goes on to say, And the God who is our salvation. And Dave, David is very thankful for the deliverance he has experienced. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ in the church age, we are thankful for Jesus and the salvation he provides. I just wanted to make note of uh, our last session. I referred to the three tenses of salvation, and I forgot to tell you that there was a button below with sermon notes. They're really not sermon notes, but it's a chart on the three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, glor <coughs> glorification. And so if you would like a bigger overview of that, that chart is available if you go to last session's message and you can click on that button and you will get a copy of that chart for you. So good, all right. Um, I was at the grocery store and I was looking in the juice section and there was a, a, a bottle of blueberry pomegranate juice, blueberry pomegranate. And I've heard that antioxidants and all this stuff is supposed to be healthy for you. And so I need all the help I can get. So I picked up the bottle looked at it and said, 100% juice, all natural. And uh, unlike me, uh, I was gonna look at the ingredients, which I normally don't pay any attention to, but on the, on the label, there was <clears throat> a picture of ripe pomegranates and blueberries and just beautiful picture of this fruit. <clears throat> and then I read the ingredients list, and here's the ingredient list on this bottle of juice. First of all, there's filtered water, pear juice, concentrate, apple juice, concentrate, grape juice, concentrate. And I got to thinking, where are the blueberries? Where are the pomegranates? And finally, I found them. They're down on the sixth and seventh on the list of nine ingredients. And uh, after a mysteriously unspecified natural flavors. And I understand by law that food ingredients are listed in descending order of weight. And that means the product that uh, contains the greatest proportion of the first ingredient on the list and successively less uh, farther down on the list of ingredients. So according to the list on that jug in my hand that I was holding, it was mostly water and mostly other kinds of juices with just enough blueberry and pomegranate flavor to add a little bit of flavor and a little bit of color. Uh, what I hadn't noticed on the bottom of the front label was a small and easy to miss uh, words which said flavored juice blend with other natural ingredients. Well, after all of the enticing photos and the clever labeling, uh, to, really they were decoys to sell something that was diluted, uh, which really wasn't a blueberry pomegranate product. It was convincingly disguised to look like something it wasn't. Well, needless to say, I didn't buy that. But later I was thinking, I left the store and thinking about <clears throat> what if I had ingredients printed on me? What if all of us had the ingredients of our life 
on a, uh, a label printed on ourselves? Would Jesus be the main ingredient, in other words? If not, how far down the list would he be in the ingredients of your life? Uh, would my label, would your label accurately re represent the contents? Or do we falsely project a misleading outward appearance that cleverly is masks diluted ingredients? My packaging may be convincing. I may look and sound like the real thing. But what if someone came to me looking for Jesus beneath my Christian label and found something else? Something Jesus flavored, but not Jesus filled. Well, if you take your copy of Scripture, turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue and we're going to see the real deal here in chapter 2 of Philippians as we continue through our study through the book of Philippians. Remember, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome and he is encouraging the people in Philippi some 800 miles to the east uh, and thanking them for a gift he's received. And he's going on to encourage them and talk to them about how to live the Christian life. In other words, what does it mean to live the Christian life? And then chapter 2, he's talked a lot about a submissive mind, about humility, about thinking more of others than we think of ourselves. And humility really is essential to successful relationships, whether it's in our families, in our friendships, in our churches, in our communities. Humility is... <clears throat> Uh, the thing that makes the intersecting gears of human personalities turn without grinding on each other. And of course, in this season, in this pandemic year, uh, we've realized that through the crisis, there's times that crisis reveals our character. And our belief should always affect our behavior. Our belief leads to our attitudes, and our uh, attitudes lead to actions in our life. And the Apostle Paul is teaching us in chapter 2 about what it means to be a, a believer in Jesus Christ, what that looks like. And we talked last session about working out your salvation, not working for, but working out your salvation. In other words, this second tense of the three tenses of salvation, this I am, I am being saved from the very power of sin, and it's called sanctification or being set apart unto God's holiness. And so the question is, is are we running with joy? Are we living our, our lives with joy? And joy comes from obedience as we obey what God's will is and what he's teaching us. In chapter 1, we saw the first imperative verb or the first command in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the believers at Philippi, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the idea is our conduct, conduct is, a, is a challenge to others to look at us and see if our ingredients are full of Christ or not. And our conduct says much about <clears throat> our, our lifestyle and about the idea of submission. Chapter 2 is really about submission. He talks about Jesus Christ and shows us how submitted that Jesus Christ and humble he was, even to the point of death on the cross. And so my purpose in preaching this message is that we would look at the marks of what it means to be, have a submissive mind or a submissive lifestyle. So if you take your copy of God's Word, chapter 2, and uh, follow along as I read this in verse 19 through 30 of chapter 2. 
The Apostle Paul writes there, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust that the Lord, that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy upon him, and only, not only on him only, but also on me, that I would not sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I be, may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is deficient in your service to me." Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, and thank you for his writing this. Thank you for Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us from their lives here today and teach us what it means to walk the Christian life, to have joy in the Christian life. And I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. And I pray for each family, each person who is viewing this session in God's Word, that you would use their, this word in their lives uh, for your honor and glory and for their transformation. And I thank you that you were with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen and amen. Well, this paragraph I've just read, <clears throat> uh, some scholars believe it's just kind of a, a uh, insertion here that it's really about Paul's travelogue. It's called the travelogue. Uh, a couple of chapter or a couple of uh, paragraphs, but I, I kind of reject that because I think it follows with the argument the Apostle Paul has begun in chapter one, one verse twenty-seven, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and he's giving us given us in chapter two the examples, of course, of Jesus Christ. He's called us uh, to be unified. Uh, the basis of unity is. Uh, humbleness and submission to one another and submission to Jesus Christ. And uh, he's told us about that. And he's given the example of Christ Jesus himself, who became man and uh, came to earth and, uh, and, and veiled his deity so that he could be the perfect example, perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And that God then exalted him. And then the Apostle Paul talks about himself and his own example. And he encourages us and challenges us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights uh, uh, in the world. And so the Apostle Paul is continuing this argument, and he's explained the submissive mind in his own experience, and he introduces us here in this paragraph I've read for you 
to two of his helpers in, in the ministry, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he does that for a very specific reason. He knows that all of us as readers might be prone to say, ah, it's impossible for me to follow such examples as Christ Jesus. He's, he's perfect. Christ is God. How can I ever live up to that example? Or we would say, well, Paul, who's like Paul, the greatest missionary probably in all of biblical history? Uh, Jesus was the Son of God. Paul was a chosen apostle. A chosen apostle. They had great spiritual experiences. And for this reason, I think, the Apostle Paul introduces us to Timothy and Epaphroditus, two ordinary people, two ordinary people who were not apostles, were not spectacular miracle workers. He wants us to know that the submissive mind, that humility in the Christian life is not a luxury to be enjoyed by a chosen few. It's really a necessity for Christian joy. It's an opportunity for all believers. And remember, Philippians is written to believers, those who have placed their trust or believed in Jesus for everlasting life. And so, again, how we think forms the way we live. Attitudes are at the heart of our action. God has a desired plan for us if we just listen and obey to that. And he calls us to a submissive sacrificial lifestyle. He shows that pattern in Christ again, and he shows the pattern in the Apostle Paul. We're given the power for a submissive mind by God himself in verses 12 through 18. And now we focus on the proof and the properties of a submissive mind in today's passage. And we're going to take this passage in two parts. We'll have two sessions. We'll look at Timothy this week, and then we'll look at Epaphroditus next week in the next session. So what does a submissive, sacrificial person look like? What are some of the qualities or the marks or the characteristics? And how do you know and how do I know if we were dem demonstrating a submissive, sacrificial mind in our thinking? Because that leads to our actions. These two men exemplify what the Apostle Paul uh, is teaching us about the submissive, submissive mind. And in this paragraph, there are six marks or six characteristics that we will look at in this uh, first session. We'll look at three and the next session. We'll look at three more of a sacrificial person. And uh, so the question is, is as we go through this, uh, do these marks characterize your life and my life? And uh, it's often a challenge for preachers and not to preach beyond their own obedience, but sometimes we do. But we will look at this first individual that's given to us, and that is Timothy. Of course, Timothy, if you're familiar with uh, Paul's ministry over time in the New Testament, we know Timothy was a young man whose mother and grandmother were <clears throat> believers in Jesus Christ, and Timothy was saved. And Timothy joined Paul in the second missionary journey. In Acts 16, we see an account of that. when he, The first time he went to Philippi, and when Philippi, when the church at Philippi was planted there. And so we will look at Timothy here today. And the first three characteristics, which are exemplified, uh, not pushed forward by Timothy, but how Paul sees him, the Apostle Paul. And so we see the proof of a submissive mind. And Mark number one, Mark number one is like-mindedness, like-mindedness. Look at, again, at verse 20 through the first part of verse verse 20, uh, 19, excuse me, in the first part of verse 20, where Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, 
that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, no one else of kindred spirit. Uh, This really fulfills chapter 2, verse 2. Look at verse 2 in chapter 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Uh, This passage about Timothy, about like-mindedness, is a a real picture of him being one who is like-minded with Paul. I read a a story once about some climbers, rock climbers, who climbed uh, the wall, uh, excuse me, of uh, the the sheer face of El Capitan in Yosemite. You may have have been in Yosemite National Park visited there. But back in 1989, there were two climbers that climbed that, that scaled that 3,000 uh, foot sheer vertical uh, climb of the face of El Capitan. Their names were Mike Corbett and Mark Wellman. And we all might say, oh, so what? You know, all sorts of people climb that rock. Uh, that is until you understand that Mark Wellman is a paraplegic and that it took the pair seven days to climb that 3,000 feet because Mike Corbett was scaled it three different times in the process of getting Mark Wellman to the summit. Uh, For much of the climb, the paraplegic Wellman was carried on Corbett's shoulders, if you can imagine. So in your life, who is Mark Wellman? Who is the one uh, who you love and befriend and is carrying you to new heights? Uh, or who are you carrying to new heights in that sense? That is a picture of like-mindedness, common mission of a common goal in life. And so verse 19, it's a sacrificial and submissive view of life begins with hope. Notice Paul again, but I hope. And he's not hoping in Timothy. He's not hoping in his own skill, in his own resources, but he ho- hopes in verse 19 in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's hoping that he can send Timothy to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi is very concerned. If you read through the book of Philippians, you know the Apostle Paul has a special place in his heart for the church at Philippi. And that the believers there shared a gift with him and he's writing to thank them. And he's, he's very ironic or peaceful with this church. So hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is an accurate view of God's sovereignty and his providence. Remember God's providence. He's working all things out in all times, in all places, in all circumstances for his glory and for the good of his people. And the Apostle Paul is strong on the sovereignty of God and the providential care of God's people. And in verse 28, in first part of 20, it tells us uh, that the Apostle Paul is sending him because he's one of kindred spirit. I have no one else of kindred spirit. So he is genuine, genuinely concerned. He is a kindred spirit, like-mindedness. Uh, if you use the NIV version, they kind of ignore this word when they translate, but it means equal-souled. In other words, our souls are equal. Have a, we have a commonality because of Jesus Christ. And this is a picture of the unity that should exist exist between believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. You think uh, in in geometry, the isosceles triangle has, it's equal-sided. And this idea of having equal souls, we are connected 
like-minded, and it's critical for our survival and joy in life. So the first mark is a like-mindedness, which fulfills chapter 2, verse 2. The second mark is that he was genuinely concerned, genuinely concerned in verse 20. He says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The Apostle Paul says not everybody has that kind of concern. Now remember, early on in Philippians, there were some preaching the word of God. They were Christians probably who were seeking to cause problems for the Apostle Paul and his imprisonment. But uh, the Apostle Paul had no one else of that same equal sold that he could send to the, the Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome. So he was genuinely concerned for them. And that fill, fulfills chapter 2, verses 3 four, through 4. Go back there. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but have also for the interests of others. And so he, they were generally concerned for others. Uh, it's a birthright for believers that because of our birth, our new nature will care because the Holy Spirit indwells us and we will care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, the, the little letter that the Apostle John wrote called 1 John is very instructive about that. Listen to a few select verses from 1 John. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. 1 John 3, 23-24 This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Verse 24 of chapter 3 The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in him, we know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. It's a mark of genuine Christianity when we care for one another. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, The one who loves God shall love his brother also. And so that is the challenge. That is the mark of the mark of being genuinely concerned. We're like-minded with one another than genuinely concerned for others. And uh, it's a challenge, isn't it? Many churches struggle and with relationships. We abrade one another. Uh, There's difficulty, especially in this time. I remember the old saying that, uh, oh, to live with saints above, that will be glory. But here to live with saints below, that's another story. And uh, that's the challenge, isn't it? Be genuinely concerned for one another. In verse 21, he tells us here, for they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. He's speaking of other believers there in Rome who he has contact with. And there's none of them like to the same example of of Timothy, who's like-minded, genuinely concerned for others. And so his interests match those of Jesus Christ. You know, much selfishness in our own life is hidden under a thin veneer of spirituality. 
And people often try to justify uh, their lack of care or lack of love for one another on some kind of veneer of spirituality. And we don't want to be that way. Some of you have played the game of life, the actual Milton Bradley game. I don't know if it's still popular or not, but it's interesting to read the history of Milton Bradley's game, the game of life. It was hugely popular at one time. But it went through all sorts of variations, and it reflects the changing culture or the context of our culture, the values of our culture. In 1798, actually, uh, before even Milton Bradley was born, the board game came from England to the U.S. and became popular, and it was called the New Game of Human Life. And it went like this, acquiring virtues sped you through the game while vices slowed you down. Parents were encouraged to play this game with their children. The game's main point was life is a voyage and begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm. Fate is cruel. Your reward lies behind the grave. That was the blurb on the box. In 1860, some 60 years later, that Milton Bradley invented a simple board game called, uh, based on this called the checkered game of life. The good path included honesty and bravery. The difficult path included idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led to wealth and success. Bradley described it as a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both young and old with a spirit of friendly competition. Well, go forward another hundred years. In 1960, the company released a commemorative edition called simply The Game of Life. It sold 35 million copies then. In this game, you earn money to buy furniture and have babies. Vices and virtues are non-existent in this game. The winner of the game is the one who at the day of reckoning that makes the most money and retires to millionaire acres. I think that whole idea is still with us. In the 1990s, 30 years later, the game designers tried to make the money less, or the game less about money. They emphasized good deeds like saving an endangered species or solving pollution problems. However, the only reward for those good deeds is cash. You can earn as much by winning at a reality TV show. And the 2011 version, another 30 years, and not too far removed from us, players can attend school, travel, start a family, or whatever they want in the game. Uh, If they earn enough points, they can reward themselves with a sports car. There is no end to this last square of the game. You can stop any time. The box says there's a thousand ways to live your life. You choose. Values are up for grab. grabs. You get as many points for scuba diving as you do for donating a kidney, for instance. The description on the website says, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. Uh, nothing about virtues or values. So that is a description from the late 1700s to the present day of how one game has reflected our culture and society. So for believers in Jesus Christ, who want to be like Timothy or use Timothy as an example. They are like-minded in Christ. They are genuinely concerned for others. And then the third mark, the final mark here for Timothy is servant-hearted. He is a servant at heart. And this fulfills 
chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Look at those verses where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. You know, people talk about servanthood and being a servant, uh, but we don't like it when we're treated like servants, do we? But there is a childlike obedience in verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, But you know of his proven worth, Paul speaking of Timothy, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child, serving his father childlike obedience in verse 12 we see that so then my beloved just as you've always obeyed <clears throat> not only only in my presence only but also much more in my absence work out your salvation so there's a childlike obedience in timothy and notice it doesn't say that he uh, he is a, a slave to paul or serving paul like a son, but serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And he hopes to send him there soon. I was at a conference in Spokane at a church building one time. And one of the sessions occurred, we a breakout session in a classroom in that church building. And it was obviously a, a, a young children's classroom. And there was a poster on the bulletin board. And on that poster there were some rules for the class. And it went like this. It said, don't talk while others are talking, singing, or praying. Number two, keep hands and feet to ourselves. Number three, no chewing gum. Number four, always have a name tag and no switching tags. I thought that was pretty perceptive. It tells you something about the class. Number five, one person talking at a time. Number six, listen to the teacher. Number seven, must participate. Number eight, and here we're getting to where the, the really gets gritty, Treat others the way we want to be treated. Number nine, be kind to each other. Number 10, forgive each other. I thought that was a very succinct uh, idea about everything we learned about Christianity. We really learned in kindergarten, if you will. And so in verse uh, <clears throat> 22 through 24, servanthood, the hope of fellowship. Look at verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as, as soon as I see how things go with me. This is an indicator the Apostle Paul, remember, was under arrest facing trial, and he didn't know at this time. His future was very uncertain, but he's trusting God for it. He could be martyred, which eventually he was, or he could be released uh, from this imprisonment. And in verse 24, he trusts in God, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So he's encouraging these believers at Philippi. He's going to send Timothy to represent him. And these marks of submission, this like-mindedness, genuine concern for others, servant-heartedness, the first three we see in this, in this passage are marks of submission. You know, in this day and age, there's a book that's been written, The Era of the Narcissist. The Era of the Narcissist. And... Uh, they make an illustration here, a point about our culture, about the day and age we live in right now. It goes like this. Of all the amazing features of the medieval cathedrals in Europe, one feature stands out as very strange in the modern mind. Some of you have traveled to Europe. You've seen the cathedrals of the great cities of Europe. 
uh, that some of them took hundreds of years to build. And, uh, but we have no idea who designed or built them. The architects and builders did not bother to sign their names on the cornerstones. People today might ask, why build the cathedral in Notre Dame if you can't take credit for it? No lasting fame, no immortalized human glory. We're perplexed by the humility of these forgotten artists who labored in obscurity. Do not, uh, they, they do and then they disappeared. This is not how we op operate here in America or in the world in the 21st century, isn't it? All this humility and anonymity began to change with the Enlightenment. For example, Rousseau, the philosopher Rousseau, wrote his book Confessions in 1789, and he dedicated it to, quote, to me with the admiration I owe myself, unquote. That's his dedication in his book. The book opens with these lines, and I quote him, I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishments will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself, unquote. That's Rousseau. In contrast, the fourth century thinker, Augustine, whose book was entitled Confessions, which Rousseau stripped off, the title, uh, gives all glory to God. In his opening line from the book of Psalms, great thou art and greatly to be praised. His focus is on Jesus Christ. As much as we might admire Augustine's humility, Rousseau's language sounds more familiar to us, isn't it? To me, with all admiration I owe myself, is a dedication that would look right at home today on social media, wouldn't it? It's been estimated that in a young person's lifetime, they will take over 27,000 selfies of themselves, you know, where they'd hold the camera up and take a picture of themselves and different things. And the Apostle Paul is telling us here that the submissive mind is like-minded. It's a Christ-like mind. It's uh, genuinely concerned for others. It is servant-hearted, and it's a fulfillment and a continuation of the great command in verse chapter 1 verse 27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel well challenging words for us today and uh, challenging things to live up to and think about and pray about in each one of our lives let me send you out with this benediction i'm going back to chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 we'll use it as a benediction this day in this session Verse 3 of chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With all humility, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace and may your week be good.